Well, friends, many of you know my affection for the great 18th and 19th century British politician, William Wilberforce. I love this man. It's one of the greatest uh, it's one of the greatest tragedies, I think, of the modern era that every school-aged child doesn't know his name. Uh, he was born into a lot of wealth and uh, had a great intellect. He barely even had to study and graduated from Cambridge. Uh, he, Wilberforce, though, comes to faith in Christ in his early 20s. He'd been living for the world before that. He was a politician, remained a politician, but he came to faith in Christ in his early 20s. Wilberforce is best known for his decades-long fight against the African slave trade where he, along with many others, finally brought down that wretched trade in 1807. And this eventually led to the eradication of slavery in all the British colonies in 1833, and Wilberforce would die a week later. And so when we think about someone who devoted their life to the eradicating of the social ills of society, you will find greater examples than William Wilberforce. And it is hardly mentioned as we consider this person, Wilberforce, it is hardly mentioned amidst this work of bringing down the slave trade that his entire motive, he would tell you, you go read his letters, I've read them, his motive in doing this was the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what drove him to do that. Which leads me to the provocative claim of Wilberforce in 1813. Writing to another British politician, Wilberforce said that that next to the slave trade, it was his deepest feeling that the greatest of our national crimes is they're making no effort to spread the gospel among their international subjects. The chief architect of curing one of the greatest atrocities in all of human history said that next to that, the greatest, the greatest, the greatest failure of their nation was not laboring to spread the gospel to those that need it. Now we can set aside all the maybe negative implications of nations funding missions, but regardless, the question remains, do we as Christians care as much about eternal suffering as we do earthly suffering? Do we care as much about eternal suffering as we do about earthly suffering, and maybe even more than that, do we care about people knowing and enjoying this God that we have come to know and enjoy ourselves? Do we want Him to be known and worshipped in praise? Well, friends, that's what the great saints of old have done, because that's what God has called us to. That's what genuine love is. That's what genuine love does. It loves God by loving our neighbors' injustices while also telling them of the coming justice of God and ways to escape it. Gladly inviting those people, the nations, into a new song. And so that's what we'll consider this morning. Big idea this morning, pretty simple. Declare God's glory among the nations. Declare God's glory among the nations. We'll do that in four points. Sing, tell, give, and say. Come straight out of the text. First one, sing. Sing. So let's just sort of think about the context of this passage here in Psalm 96. Right? The setting of this passage is believed to be Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 16, where the Ark of the Covenant is placed in the tabernacle. If you're not familiar with the story of the Bible, this is before the coming of Christ. Uh, and so God is working amongst his people Israel. The Ark of the Covenant was a very special thing where God's presence would be said to dwell upon. 
And so that's the setting, the ark coming into the tabernacle. That's why the psalm is believed to be written by King David, who was there at that event when the ark is coming into the tabernacle. And so first off, just some general observations about this psalm. Um, Let's just make some very obvious things, and then we'll zero in on what the passage calls us to. But when you heard that passage read, I hope you heard two things being mentioned a lot. Two things. You should have heard a lot, the frequency, the repetition of the Lord's name and the nations or the peoples or the families of the earth. You should have heard those two things a lot. The Lord, that name, if you look down there in the passage, you'll see it, is used 11 times in 13 verses. 11 times in 13 verses. References to the nations or peoples or all the earth is some 12 times in these 13 verses. And therein, friends, you see the thrust of the passage. Here in Psalm 96, to see the nations, to see all of the earth enter into the praises of the Lord. That's the big idea. Now, it's worth noting that that word Lord, you'll notice in your Bibles, if you look down there, you'll see all the letters are capitalized. That normally means in your translations, that normally means that the Hebrew word behind it is the covenant name of God, Yahweh, I am. So the name, same name given to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. In other words, in this passage, this Lord that we're talking about here, it's being referenced, is not just some general God of sorts. The author is using a very specific name of God, the covenantal name of God, Yahweh, the God revealed to us in the Old Testament, who is revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. That is the Lord that we're talking about here. The psalmist is very specific to be referencing him. He is the one that the praises of all the earth are due. Yahweh. And that's also another point worth making as well, friends. The the Lord of the Bible does not present himself as one God alongside a bunch of other rival gods. No, he is the only God. We thought about that last week. He is the only God. Or as it says down there in verse 4, for all the gods of the people are worthless idols. And friends, there are some confessing Christians that are ashamed of that verse. They don't want to say that. But friends, it is clear and it is the unequivocal truth that the Lord is the Lord. He is the Lord of all the earth. He is God and there is no other. And all other gods, as it says there, are worthless in comparison to him. Or for that matter, they're just worthless in and of themselves. Which explains the need of Psalm 96 to declare his glory among the nations. That they would stop worshiping false idols and start worshiping the one true God, which brings us back to this idea of song or singing. You'll see the call to sing three times there in those first couple of verses. And that first one's a bit curious, isn't it? Why does he say, oh, sing to the Lord a new song? Why does it say that? Well, I think our answer is found in this call for all the earth to join into the song. He's saying, the author is saying that they need to stop singing the songs that they have been singing to false idols and they need to start singing a new song. They need to start singing a new song to the Lord of all the earth. So in other words, the the call to sing to the Lord a new song is a call to sing Amazing Grace or uh, Jesus Paid It All or How Great Thou Art. It's a call to have them sing that for the first time in faith. Beloved, try and think back to the very first time that you sang some gospel song, believing. Do you remember that? How sweet it was, how refreshing it was, how right it was, even this morning when you did it. Something about it that's right, that's good. 
That's what David is calling all the earth to do. To put down worthless idols and to join in the chorus of the nations as they sing together in one voice, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. To bless his name, have the whole earth sing in praise to him. To stop singing old songs that are wrong to false idols, worthless idols. To sing a new song to the one true and living God. Over the years, uh, as I've pastored here, we've had quite a number of people gather with us uh, in the church gathering for the first time in their whole life. Not that long ago, we just had another one. People, maybe you're here for the first time. You've never been to a church service. And many of them, uh, those people that come for the first time to a church service, uh, I've met many of them that come from Muslim background countries. Maybe that's you. And as they've come into our gathering, I, I, I will always circle back with them. I'll say, all right, what stood out? Something in the sermon, a, you know, it was a prayer, a song, what? And almost every single time they say the same thing. The singing. The singing stands out to them. I think we forget how rare it is to come together and sing. Just think about how rare it is in the American week that we not only sing together, but we come together to sing in such a way as to declare our collective joy and our identity and hope in God. Just think about how rare that is. People in our American week may sing at a concert or they may sing at a school play, but rarely will people come across in the American week. Rarely will people come across gender and ethnicity and age and social class with one voice and stand next to each other and sing about their unifying collective hope in Christ, their Lord, their forever King of whom they will spend eternity with. That is so rare. I think we can, again, forget how unique it is for Christians to sing and to invite others into that song. I think that's another important that we should also make. When we, when we call for the nations to put down their idols and take up worshiping Christ alone, we are not calling them just to sort of stop doing this and start doing that. To stop doing it this way and start doing it that way. That's somehow how our evangelism comes off. But what the psalmist is calling us to in the work of evangelism and discipleship is, is to say, we want you to sing. What do you do when you sing? Now, there are songs of lament, of course, but more often when we sing, we're singing with joy about something that we're excited about, that we love, that we want to remember. That's what you're doing in the work of missions and evangelism. You're inviting others to joy. The call evangelism, the call to those outside of Christ to stop serving and maybe start singing to the God of the universe. Therefore, since this is the spirit of evangelism, we need to secondly, tell them. Tell. We need to sing. Secondly, tell. We sing to the Lord, right? That's what it says. And bless his name. And in so doing, we tell. What does it say there? Verse two, we tell of his salvation from day to day. We're just always telling it. We tell of his salvation from day to day. Verse 3, we declare his glory. Where? Among the nations. Not just in one little tiny corner. Everywhere. We tell of his salvation from day to day, it says. And we declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all peoples. Not just the ones we like. Not even just our enemies. Not just the nations, but also our neighbors. We tell all peoples of his salvation from day to day. We declare his glory among the nations. 
Because great is the Lord and he is greatly to be praised. He's feared, that is to say, held in the highest respect above all false gods. They are worthless idols and they need to know that. And we need to tell them that they're worthless so that they would then take up singing to the great and the marvelous God. They need to know the Lord, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, that he's the one that made the heavens. It's not some other false god. Verse 6, they need to know splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. So with a desire to have people enter into the joy of a new song to the one true Lord, we are trying to bring the nation's attention both to two things, to the worthlessness of the idols they are serving and to the worthiness of Christ. We're trying to bring their attention to both the worthlessness of their idols and the worthiness of Christ. When we tell people about the glory of the gospel, we need to be, in other words, doing some deconstruction and we need to be doing some construction. In other words, we need to be telling them to repent and to believe. I can remember years ago going to India and we were warned in advance of going out house to house just to share uh, the gospel to tell people of the salvation from today. I remember them telling us that like you're going into a polytheistic society. In other words, when you go out and tell people about Jesus, it's very possible that people will just take up following Jesus and add him to their pantheon of gods. Never actually worshiping Christ as Lord. We were warned about that. We talked about ways sort of how to do that. How do we, how do we share the gospel with them and make sure that they're turning away from all these false gods and turning to following Jesus and not just adding it. And so we made sure to call the people that we met with to repent of worshiping those false gods and to take up worshiping and enjoying the one true living God in the person and the work of Christ. I can remember driving by and seeing on their uh, tabletops just these idols that they would worship. And all these different gods, all these different strange gods. And and we, I think we Westerners, can sometimes hear that and go, that's nuts. That you would just have all of these different gods. But I wonder, are we so different? We can be so culturally arrogant that we don't see the very same problem around us. Which is to say, we can be polytheistic ourselves. Just think about how many people that have the, have been baptized into churches who also, at the very same time, sleep with whoever they want whenever they want and are not at all ashamed of it. Or think of the many that are taking the name of Christ and living off of lying and cheating and stealing. Or people that take the name of Christ and also, at the very same time, affirm the worship of all kinds of other religions that are opposed to the gospel. Or those that would tell us that we shouldn't even go to the nations to share the gospel because that's cultural arrogance. Again, all the while, these people claiming to be Christians. Friends, we can be just as polytheistic as anybody else. To, to affirm the, to affirm the uh, worship of other nations is no different than not affirming the need to worship Christ as Lord. Claiming Christ and at the same time claiming individual authority and affirming all religions, friends, is not worshiping Christ as Lord. Full stop. We can be polytheistic ourselves. And so we must be about the work of telling 
the nations those two things. That the gods of the peoples, be they formalized religions or culturally accepted worldviews that sees the individual person as authoritative, both of these things need to be told that they are worthless idols, that they account for nothing in the end. And they were rebellions against the one true God that made them for himself. And we need to also tell them about God's greatness and his glory and his plan of salvation. Declaring the glory of God in Christ and speaking of his claim to have all authority in heaven and on earth. No other one does. Beloved, we must tell our neighbors and the nations the gospel day after day. And this is not anything that we ought to be unexcited about, right? We do believe that the gospel is good news, right? And yes, it's true that in order for us to tell this good news, we have to tell them some bad news, that they've sinned, they're serving false idols and the like. And yes, we are promised that we will be reviled. Again, we thought about that last week. The Bible tells us we're going to be made fun of. We're going to be mocked. We'll be hurt. We prayed this morning for the persecuted peoples. But will we let that silence us? If we care about our neighbors and the nation's earthly sufferings, will we not love them enough to care about their eternal suffering? And in eternal hell apart from Christ? Will we care enough to risk our own reputations, our own jobs, our own livelihoods, our own lives? in order to see them rescued from hell, but also to have them come in to the choir to sing of the God that we love so much that saved us. And so we must again tell them of the worthiness of Christ. We must tell them that age-old story of the love of God in Christ Jesus on the cross, that he's the way of salvation. We must tell them this day to day, the passage says. Telling our children, telling our coworkers, telling our neighbors across the hall or down the street, telling our classmates or our professors, our aunts, our uncles, our cousins, our moms, our dads, foreign nationals that are here, our internships, refugees that were forced to come here. Or we go to them and we share the gospel with them among the different tribes of peoples, people like the Kurds, Kurds that have no, Bedini Kurds that have no discernible church worshiping in their own tongue. The millions in India and Cameroon, beloved, we are the means of God's grace to go and tell them, to invite them in to this song. We're the means, we're the hands and feet that he intends to use to tell them that they have sinned, that they have rebelled and are justifiably cut off, dead in their trespasses and sins, following the prince of the power of the air, children of wrath, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That's how great he is. Said his only son that was fully God and fully man, that took on flesh, that received the penalty for our sins on the cross. If you would but repent of your sins and trust in his sacrifice, then he can make your payment and his righteousness will get transferred to you. And you can be sure that that payment is made because on the third day he rose from the grave. You can have confidence. We have to tell that news and invite them to sing a new song about a worthy God that is clothed with strength and beauty, the God that they were made to serve. 
Oh, beloved, if we love God, we must sing to him and invite others into that new song by telling others the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because not only will they be saved, but again, more importantly, God is worthy of their worship. That's the third point. Give. We sing. We tell. We give. That's what that word ascribe means. There you can see that in verse 7 and 8. Again, three times used. Give to the Lord, O families of the earth. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due. Circle that word. His name. Bring an offering. Come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. God is worthy of all of that. And even more. Friends, the psalmist is laboring here to help us see the worth of the Lord and the fortune that is due his eternal praise. And so when we tell people the gospel, we aren't just calling them to be saved from hell. More importantly, we're calling them to be saved to this God. This God full of splendor and majesty and glory and strength. This God that all the earth would tremble before if he were to reveal himself to us in the fullness of his glory. I think all too often we don't emphasize this part when telling the gospel. We often reduce, it's too easy to reduce. I've done this. We we reduce the call to repent and believe to just praying a prayer or just intellectually agreeing to the facts of the gospel, which, by the way, the demons believe. Or maybe in telling the gospel, we emphasize some aspect of obedience. Just do this and do that and do this. Go to church and read your Bible and pray. Just yesterday... Right behind me, a block behind this building. Just yesterday, I was talk- we were watching a baseball game, and I was just talking to someone about Jesus. And he mentioned that he went to church. And I said, well, how do I get to heaven? He didn't know who I was or what I did. I kept that back, and I just listened to him. And he proceeded to tell me all these things I needed to do. And I asked him a simple question. I said, what about Jesus? Where's Jesus in all of this? And you should have seen him. This guy, I think, really loved the Lord. Because you know what he did? He just, his, his shoulders sank. And he said, closed his eyes. He said, thank you, Nathan. We need the blood of Christ. It's so easy in the telling of the gospel. We can do all these different things instead of calling them to the greatness of the glory of Christ and the sufficiency of the blood of Christ. Not in us. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to him the praise. Give him the worship that he is due. And all these things, we show them what we are saved from and what we are saved to. We are saved from hell and to heaven with this God. Just listen to how Paul explains hell in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. He says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Do you see what he's doing? Notice how Paul is emphasizing not only what they have in hell, but what they miss out on, the presence of God, the glory of God, the glory and the might of God. They don't get that. It's not there. We are saved to that God. The God that made the heavens. We are saved to his splendor and majesty. Saved to his strength and beauty. Saved to his glory. Too often in the telling of the gospel, we don't include all that the Lord is due. We're not jealous for his glory. As it says there again, verse 8, do glory. Verse 9, worship. 
Missions and evangelism is not just about seeing more people rescued from their sin. That's man-centered. We want to be God-centered in our evangelism, in our missions. We want them to see and savor the glory of God and to worship Him and enjoy Him forever. It's even more about seeing more people stop worshiping worthless idols and start to worship alongside the choir of the angels and alongside of us. This new song that extols the praises of our worthy king. The king that left the heavenly places, took on flesh, died a cruel death on a cross so that we might see and savor him forever. Missions and evangelism is about adding more people to that glad-hearted choir of the redeemed in order that more could sing to the God that we love. The motive is louder singing in more places so that God would receive more glory that is due his name. And friends, this could be why so few of us are jazzed about the importance of missions and evangelism. This might be the reason right here. It could be that the reason why we don't really want to go about this work or even see this work as so centrally important is because we are not enraptured. We're not mesmerized. We're not enchanted with the greatness of the glory of God. Therefore, we care little about more people singing a new song to him over in India or across the street. Notice I didn't say none. We don't care at all. I didn't say that. I said little. Most of us know that we should care more about missions and evangelism. And many of us do care. Many in this congregation care. And I thank God for that. But most of us don't have missions and evangelism as this burning desire within us. Whereas we do care about other things a lot. Good things that we should care about. And so if you see a weakness in your interest or passion for missions and evangelism, this telling of the nations, of the greatness of the glory of God in Christ, then the action point is not go out there and will yourself to just do it. The action point from the psalmist in Psalm 96 here is to recognize a weakness in knowing and enjoying the splendor of the majesty of God. The action point is then to labor to see more of the worth of God in Christ. And from there, from that fullness, from that sight of the greatness of the glory of God in Christ Jesus, you then go and tell, right? Isn't that what you do? that what you do? You go on your great trip. You see this amazing thing. What do you do? You come back. You've you've been enchanted by this beauty. And you come back and talk about it. That's what we do. That's just a preview of what we ought to be doing in the work of missions and evangelism. Just day after day, seeing the greatness of the glory of God. And then going and telling other people about it. Calling them to join into that song. As we'll see, the trees are going to sing. And by the way, this explains why Wilberforce could say what he did before. He cared about the abolition of the slave trade just as much as he cared about the spread of the gospel. It's rare to find someone that embodies both of those. And the reason was that Wilberforce came to love the glory of God in the face of Christ. He had a genuine love of God. And as a result, he was willing to risk it all in order to facilitate whatever was needed in order to alleviate earthly suffering or eternal suffering for the aim of the exaltation of his God. The reason was he wanted to, again, ascribe all the families of the earth this glory and strength to do his God's name. 
Because he treasured the Lord above everything else. He, he wasn't hypocritical. He wasn't unbalanced. He never got over his salvation. Therefore, he told about it day after day. And he did justice as was fitting of uh, for uh, humankind as is fitting for us as Christians. But he also was concerned about missions and evangelism. Both because he was so enraptured by this God. This, friends, is the fuel of missions and evangelism in Psalm 96. The more we see the worth of God and the grace of God, the more we want more people to enter into the praises of God. Guys, this is exactly why we can see the picture or hear the story of a Bedini Kurd that lives on the other side of the earth that we've never met before and we're burdened. And we spend tens of thousands of dollars and spend tons of time in prayer and in efforts to try to strategize to see that they would get it. How does that happen? We don't even know these people because we want God to be glorified in their tongue. We want more people that speak Bedini to come alongside us in our little English so that they can sing. There's not enough Bedini Kurds voices that are in the choir. That's our burden. Not just that they would sing and be saved, but also that God would be heard. He deserves to be worshipped in Bedini Kurdish. It saddens us. It ought to sadden us to know that there are so few voices in that language singing his praise that he made for himself. We want to see God glorified in their midst. Therefore, we, we support the work in our missions giving, in our missions going, in our missions praying. Same thing. This is what's behind all of our burden for the Spanish speakers of Columbia Heights. Same thing. We leave in, Most of us don't go to Columbia Heights. Why would we care? Because we couldn't identify a healthy, gospel-loving, Jesus-treasuring church. So we start one there, and it costs us a lot of money, time, and effort. But we do it because we love God, and we love them. We want them to know. It's the same reason why we support the, uh, the African-Americans of Lincoln Heights and Mercy of Christ Fellowship and Welton Bonner, Greater Love Church. We want to see more healthy, gospel-loving churches in that part of the city. It's the same reason why 13 years ago, me and my wife and Joey and his wife moved to here because we wanted to see people from AU Park and American University and Cleveland Heights and all these, Cleveland Park, all these different places, know and treasure Christ because we love God. We want to love our neighbor, that they would enter into that same worship. This is the fuel of the work of missions and evangelism. It's desire to know and treasure Christ, to see more people added to his song. Because his glory is do that. Now, when I say that, when the I should say, when the text says that the glory do his name, verse 8, some of you might be thinking a few things. Some of you might be thinking, as soon as you say that, you might be thinking, well, is the psalmist, when he says, ascribing or giving the glory due his name, some of you might think, well, is God insecure that he needs this? More praise? Is he insecure? And if he needs this, if he needs this missions and evangelism because he's insecure, that doesn't sound like a mighty God. That sounds, Nathan, more like a kind of God that's kind of, you know, small and feeble. Now, let me address that question. That's an understandable response. I could see how you get there. However, it is not the insecurity of God that calls, that he calls us to the work of missions and evangelism. It's the exact opposite. He knows his worth. It's we that don't know his worth. He knows the end goal of humanity. It's us that doesn't. 
Therefore, since God doesn't break the first command to have no other gods before the one true and living God, it is the security of the knowledge of his own infinite worth that then leads him to call us to call others into this great salvation. Again, it's his security and his own glory that allows him to freely offer the free gift of salvation to all peoples on the earth. Not his insecurity, but it's it's security that calls him to it. Maybe another way in which you would look at this passage is to say, why does the Lord say that I need to have glory to his name? You might say, well, is this some kind of payment? Like, in other words, do I have to kind of go do missions and evangelism in order to pay back God? No. Once again, the giving of glory to God is a call to enter into the eternal satisfaction of God's love for his own glory. In his own security, he willingly offered his son as the payment for our sins when he did not have to. Jesus said when he died, it is, y'all finished, finished. It's done. Payment complete. His resurrection again shows that the price has been paid for all who believe. Therefore, the giving of the glory that is due his name is a call to do the very same thing the Lord has been doing from eternity. The Father ascribing glory to the Son. The Son ascribing glory to the Father. The Spirit ascribing glory to the Son. The Lord is just inviting other people into that. He's all sufficient. He needs nothing. And so the work of missions and evangelism is not a payment, but instead it's a gracious invitation to join into the choir to do what God's been doing his whole life. So it's not insecurity that calls us to do the work of missions and evangelism. It's not a payment in order to do the work of evangelism. And thirdly, it is not arrogant for the Christian to tell of the gospel and call for people to respond by giving God the glory to his name. It is not arrogant. Friends, is it arrogant for an airplane to insist that he fly? Is it arrogant that a rose insists that she flower? Is it arrogant for the waves to demand that they crash upon the ocean? In other words, is it arrogant for people to do what they were made to do? We were made to image God. Genesis 1. And so therefore, the call of work, the call of the work of missions and evangelism is to call for others to do that. To know God, to worship God, to enjoy God, to display him, to image him. And God in Christ, he is the image of the invisible God. He comes and then empowers us by his grace to then take up within us, to then embody the spirit of Christ, to call others to do the same. So in other words, it is not arrogant to do the work of missions and evangelism. It is a gracious calling to call humanity into the thing that was made to do from the beginning. If we were to not do that, we would not be loving. Because we would not be calling people to do the thing that they were made to do, that God made them to do. To know and enjoy God forever. To not do the work of missions and evangelism would be to withhold the love of God to the world. And so splendor and majesty and glory and honor and power and riches, God is worthy of all of them. And yet we rebelled against him and he in grace and mercy sent his son to save us in the gospel. And through Christ, we are not only saved to sing to him, but we are empowered to be the hands of feet to go and tell them. And in so doing, as we respond, we then give him all glory. We sing, we tell, we give, and finally we say, we say, we say, verse 10, the Lord reigns. How is it we know that he reigns? Well, I'd say for two reasons. First, because he accomplished his salvation. 
He has all authority as evidenced by the fact that Christ has done the work and nothing could stop him. No weapon formed against him shall stand. But the second reason in which we know the Lord reigns is Jesus tells us all authority is mine in heaven and on earth. But the third reason, I said there's two, I'm going to give you, I gave you an extra one. Third reason why we know that he reigns is because he promises, as we see here, he will judge the people with equity. In other words, he's able to bring about his restorative purposes on the earth. Anybody here want to see the world fixed? Anybody want to see death come to an end? Anybody want to see injustices done away with? That's the promise of the Bible. And God is able to do it uniquely. The Bible says here in in Psalm 96, he will judge the the people with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. I love this passage. The sea and everything in it, the field and everything in it, the trees of the forest, they're singing about this coming justice and all sing for joy before the Lord. Why? The text tells us because he comes to judge the earth. And how will he judge it? It says in righteousness and faithfulness. I love this. So the passage begins with singing and it ends with singing. It begins with a declaration to all the nations, and it ends with a declaration to all the nations. And throughout all of it, God, the God of all glory, is working out his redemptive purposes from the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean to the Sherpas on top of Mount Everest. Judgment is coming, and we can be confident of that because the Lord reigns. And notice the the nature of creation's song. Did y'all catch that? Did you notice how the song, how the, how the creation, what they're doing, the nature of it is joyful, right? It's their joy. They're excited. Just as we read in Romans 8, same thing. There's, there's something about marlins and mongooses. There's something about blowfish and bonsai trees. There's something about uh, seaweed and sweet gum trees that seem to groan now for having been subjected to the curse, but are excited about being able to do freely that which God made them to do anticipating this judgment and this coming glory that they get to put back on. There's something about creation that's longing for that. You can hear those longing most, especially when you see a tornado or a hurricane or whatever the case may be. But they're all the time. Scripture would give us an indication they're always doing this. Listen to Romans 8. It's very similar to Psalm 96. Romans 8, 19 to 22. For the creation waits with how? Eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So creation exults because of the coming judgment, because it knows that it will fully and finally be able to be what God made it to be in the beginning. But it's not, friends, just creation that exults in the coming judgment. Look at the very next verse in Romans 8. Romans 8, 23 and 24. And not only the creation, but we, he's talking about Christians, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. So Psalm 96 says clearly that the judgment that is coming will be done in righteousness and faithfulness. God will do it faithfully in keeping with his holy character. He won't miss a spot. And everything will be judged exactly as it should be. It's going to be a just judgment. 
And it is here at this coming judgment that creation and the sons and daughters of God will finally be set free. Free from sin, free from death, free from gun violence, finally. Free from sexual abuse in the church, free from that. Free from sinful anger and manipulation, free from doubt, free from sexual immorality. Free from racism, free from loneliness, free from seeing the glory of the Lord in a mirror dimly, free from not seeing people worship Jesus and instead worship idols. And we all who are in Christ on that day when he returns will put on redeemed bodies and worship the Lord face to face on a resurrected earth. All the curse will be done away with. There will be no more tears forever because in that judgment, all those who have not sung a new song to the Lord, but instead have gone on worshiping idols, never experiencing the marvelous works of God in new birth, never repenting of sin, but instead living for sin and self, they will be outside the gate of heaven. And as we said in 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, they will not know the glory and the might of God. They will be away from his presence, but we And by the way, if you're not a Christian, you're wondering, have you Christians just sort of figured this out better than the rest of them? No, I have salvation because of the grace and mercy of God, not because of anything I've done. I'm an idiot. It's only the grace of God that I know what I know. When Jesus returns and we enter into that state, that eternal state, when he judges the earth and we are ushered into that eternal state, we will be the happy few that remain steadfast to the end by the grace of God. We who kept ourselves in the love of God, we who are being kept to the end by the sovereign grace of God, we will finally have what we've all been waiting for, what the world is waiting for, a world of righteousness, a world established, never moved, because the Lord will reign in the fullness of his glory and we will finally be with him of whom our soul loves. This day of the Lord is coming. This day of judgment is a day of joy for all those that wait upon Christ. Therefore, sing a new song to the Lord. Tell of his great salvation day after day. Give to him the glory that is due his name. And say to him and to yourself and to others, the Lord reigns. All authority in heaven and on earth is his and he will come again. And so, friend, if you have never repented of sin and trusted in Christ, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you can stop worshiping false idols and come to Jesus and be born again to worship and enjoy him forever. Today's the day. Turn to him. Trust him. Repent of those serving those other idols and worship and enjoy him forever. Trust his salvation at the cross. And for the rest of us, Restoration Church family, I leave you with this. I beg of you to pray that we would be increasingly be a people that are burdened for evangelism and for missions. May we be that kind of people. Pray. Just join me in praying. Take the next week or two weeks to join me in praying that this church would be burdened for missions and evangelism in our own lives, and our corporate life together, that other churches around the world would be burdened for this. That we would be burdened for this. And as the Lord answers those prayers and gives us more of a burden and our lips are more free to tell of his salvation day after day, pray that God would raise up fruit from that evangelism around the world. And as they come in, may we then make disciples that delight in the supremacy of Christ here in Washington, D.C. and around the globe because Christ is worth it. Let's be jealous for the glory of God.
and the good of our neighbor in that glory by telling them, calling them to worship this God. Let's pray together. Father, forgive me for the ways in which I can be fearful to not tell of your salvation. I'm sorry. You're worth more than that. You've done so much in my life. Forgive us as a church for the ways in which we're fearful to speak up now, as we always have maybe, about the gospel. I beg of you, God, give us the heart of the psalmist in Psalm 96, that we would want others to know the splendor and the majesty of Christ. Give us boldness to call false idols just what they are. And from a desire of love to see them rescued from hell and brought to those faithful shores, may we speak up. And may many people respond, both in Washington, D.C. and in Central Asia and in other parts of the world. For the glory of your name and the good of our neighbors, we ask that you would do this in our midst because you're worthy of it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.